very happy to be joined uh, this week in our episode of the podcast by a team from Regnan, who, as you will soon hear, have been doing a very impressive and interesting piece of work that really looks into the environmental impact of hydrogen as a, as a basically as a tool for investment. So what are we investing in? Why are we investing in it? And what's the, the kind of unintended or unforeseen consequences of that in, in some situations? So uh, one note before we carry on, which is normally these podcasts are a one-on-one exercise. Now today we're going rogue and there's actually four of us in this conversation. So um, I hope you enjoy it. Slightly different and certainly a very interesting theme given the context of our, of our podcast. So what I'm going to do first of all is I'm going to start with Maxime as you were my entry point into this group. Perhaps you could introduce yourself and just give a little bit of context to your work at Regnan uh, and then from there we'll go to Osh and then on to Abby uh, and then we can kick off with the core content after that. Thank you, Alex, uh, and uh, yeah, thank you for welcoming us on your podcast. Uh, very happy with that, and uh, yeah, very enjoyed, very much enjoyed the uh, listening to uh, the previous conversations you had with uh, with other guests. So, uh, thank you for for getting us here. So, my name is Maxime Lefloc. So, I have spent the last uh, decade in sustainable finance. Um, I um, I've been uh, a, a research analyst uh, in, in in different organisations, so focusing on how companies can play a role in uh, the sustainable economy, and as investors, how to identify those companies, how to analyse them, and invest in them. And in Regnant, I am part of uh, the uh, investment team uh, managing uh, a global equity strategy. Uh, Regnan Global Equity uh, Impact Solutions uh, Strategy, and uh, we invest in companies across the globe that have environmental and and social uh, impact solutions. So it's themes ranging from renewable energy to recycling, health, education, etc. That's great, thank you. And Osh. Thanks, Alex. Um, so I'm Osh. My full name's Oshadi, and it's just easier to say Osh. Um, so I'm a senior analyst um, at Regnan and my academic background is actually quite varied. It's got um, engineering, finance and a little bit of arts in there as well. And I've been in the investment management industry for about six or seven years and with Regnan for just over five, five years now. Um, and as an analyst at Regnan, we um, mainly do, you know, uh, analysis of companies um, and also thematic research quite recently and also conduct um, engagement with the companies um, that either Pendle or Regnan invests in um, or with um, our clients as well. Uh, yes, so Abby here. I um, have been at Regnan for about three years and um, my gosh, I'm also an ESG analyst. I actually come from um, an arts background. I did an interdisciplinary degree in um, development studies, uh, a master's degree, um, and yeah, went straight into working for Regnan and traditionally have, um, similar to Ash, covered, uh, done stock level analysis and now moving more into the thematic research. 
Great. Okay, so just as kind of a reminder that the context of this whole conversation is hydrogen, which we've talked about in other ways on this podcast before. We had um, just back in late 2020 a podcast with the project director of H21, which is one of the uh, early stage hydrogen projects in the UK. It's definitely come up in other conversations. But most of the time when hydrogen comes up, and I was saying this to you all before we started, um, most of the time I see hydrogen as being discussed in in its economic terms, in the sort of the cost and investability uh, as a solution to decarbonize. We're talking about something a little different here today. Um, So before we kick off into the work that you've done, perhaps Maxine, could you just give a little bit of a sense of, obviously we know that Regnan is an impact investor, that's the right phrase to use, Um, but what is the research and investing approach? Could you start us off there and then we'll have a look at um, the role of hydrogen uh, in the kind of a sustainable economy and in decarbonisation and move into your research from there? Yeah, so uh, so Regnan um, has uh, has a longer history actually that goes back from uh, the 1990s, looking at sustainability and its implications uh, in terms of investment. Uh, so it's really it really started uh, in the 1990s uh, with research at uh, Monash University in Australia. Um, so uh, it was a uh, spin-off of um, a environmental management uh, centre. Uh, so really rooted in uh, that kind of um, academic approach of you know, uh, linked to environmental uh, science and building on a wider uh, expect- expertise uh, over time, um, analyzing companies and engaging with them uh, on their sustainability uh, issues. And uh, more recently, uh, developed a uh, asset management arm so uh, from the research and engagement base to uh, a asset management base, and this is where um, I, I come in, uh, uh, launching an impact investment strategy uh, that I mentioned uh, before and, and, and developing that approach. So building a, a, an impact investing uh, franchise. Now, the reason that why this, this matters, I think, is that as you mentioned, uh, the we we've done research on the environmental angle related to hydrogen, because I think this is what investors over time are getting more interested in. I mean, you see that we we are an example of impact investors, um, but the that movement is 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 growing uh, throughout the globe, and there is a a growing recognition from investors that sustainability issues are extremely relevant to the investment case uh, when, when, when investing in a, in a company because they will have an extremely important effect on the success or failure of an investment uh, going forward. And so in that respect, hydrogen, the economics of hydrogen are extremely important. We've uh, we spent a lot of time Trying to understand this uh, alongside other, other any other uh, industry we can invest in, the economics are really important. But the environmental and the social angles are also extremely important uh, to make sure that you do have a long-term viable solution, especially when we talk about the context of decarbonization to the transition to low-carbon economy. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting when you first um, got in touch um, again, I should say, because we were in touch a few years ago and we're talking about this research project. It, actually, I felt for a moment like a bit of an idiot. And here's why, because um, in the industrial decarbonisation work that me and my team do and, and the way that we support people in that area, we're just as guilty as, as everyone else as looking at uh, projects, sorry, not projects, technologies like hydrogen or CCOS or anything at a real face value level, you know, a sort of well, how does it decarbonize and how do, and what does it cost? And, and bluntly, you know, none of us had actually been asking the question of where our clients who are mostly in industry actually looking at the sustainability of the technologies. Um, as we said, there is a lot of excitement around hydrogen. Um, and I think this, this research that you've done is fascinating. So I'm actually going to direct this next question at Osh, which is really to sort of explain how you've gone about uh, analysing the environmental impact of uh, hydrogen, and yeah, just to talk us talk us through the project and and the approach that you took. So Redden generally, when we approach these kinds of uh, thematics or problems, really we try to look at the whole picture or take the system's view. Um, we think that it allows for a more fulsome view, you know, of an investment thesis or a, or, or a theme. Um, and of course, um, in line with that, uh, you know, we acknowledge that the emergence of industries such as the hydrogen economy or, you know, complex adaptive systems. Um, and, you know, I use the term emergence in two ways. One is the emergence of the industry itself, but also the emergence in complexity where the arising of new unexpected structures, patterns or processes, um, where emergent phenomena appear to have a life of their own, you know. So really the uncertainty surrounding the evolution of the industry as a whole. So really when you take that sort of, you know, beyond the economics of that, the sustainability of the hydrogen economy as a whole. You know, it's also, I, I like to think about these things as, you know, the puzzle versus mystery kind of thing, you know, that, that puzzles, you know, while they can be difficult, they have one solution, you know, whereas mysteries don't really have one solution or, a, or any defined rules to govern them. So in really... You know, in dealing with these kinds of problems, we, you know, we, we have to understand the multiple avenues and potential for varied evolution across the life cycle of the industry. So going beyond the headline impacts, going beyond, if you want, you know, the conversation around economics or the sole primary focus around carbon. So we thought it would be prudent for us to investigate the life cycle impacts of carbon and beyond to fully understand the system. So in doing that, we essentially started with mapping the hydrogen economy. Um, so looking at the different ways of producing hydrogen, you know, via green uh, means, via electrolysis, or whether it's blue, via uh, steam methane reforming with carbon capture and storage. Uh, we looked at the drivers of the hydrogen economy, whether it be carbon abatement um, or energy independence applications, uh, you know, industrial applications such as cement or steel or heating. Um, and of course, always, you know, the impacts from a view of how they contribute or are a risk to the sustainable development goals. Um, so once we finished the mapping, which was a long exercise, we um, try and you know we realized that we should first establish actually if the hydrogen production itself is sustainable, because as logic will follow, you know if the production is unsustainable, then everything else that follows is likely to be inherently unsustainable. Um, so our ultimate aim is to you know better understand how the industry may evolve into the future. Uh, you know, given that the driving force behind hydrogen is its green credentials, we want to answer uh, which technology has the most promise to deliver on these green expectations um, and whether the pursuit of hydrogen would lead to fresh new environmental problems. Um, and given the cost convergence that is expected, will environmental factors be key in determining um, the winners or the losers? So it's this sort of more fulsome understanding of how um, the hydrogen economy may evolve into the 
future. And were there any any kind of, I mean, we are going to talk a little bit more about the specific impacts that you've identified, but was, were there any particular surprises? So I think, um, again, given the sort of sole or if you're primary, um, you know, uh, focus on carbon, um, I was surprised to see water actually being a key uh, potential issue, right? I was actually reading today, you know, that if, um, if, if Australia is to service the projected export market of, you know, 550 million kilos of hydrogen by 2030, it would require 5.5 billion litres of water a year. And if they were to further decarbonize domestic industries with hydrogen, it would require a further 99 billion liters of water. Apparently, it's equivalent to adding 1.7 million people to the population of Australia. I mean, it, it, it of course, compares as quite little compared to agricultural water requirements, which is 1.1 trillion. But, you know, we have to understand here in Australia and, you know, also in other parts of the world, water is already a stretched resource, right? So so the addition of this would would, would, would bring quite a lot of burden to already stretched water resources. I think that was one of the surprising things that we found over the research. Yeah, I mean, something uh, maybe to add that was surprising was actually um, the, the, the reason why we ended up doing this research was because we couldn't find it. Um, and there has been people doing some really interesting work. And we've talked to some researchers at universities about it, but even them, uh, are saying that uh, for them themselves, it's been difficult to conduct their own research because uh, it's difficult to find the information. Um, companies are not sharing a lot of data, not publishing a lot. Um, and so for an, a topic that you would assume would be critical for proving the case for a whole uh, industry and you know, a whole you know, People call uh, the the this uh, the hydrogen economy. It's it could be very big. Now it it's all resting on hydrogen as being a, a clean alternative. Uh, so the case has to be proven, and it was surprising not to see more uh, research, more evidence, more uh, really strong cases from the environmental perspective. Yeah, even from even from the kind of research that we do, which is obviously less, much less quantitative than than your approach. You know, I think there's a, a massive gap actually in what's available between the super super technical, which is for me impenetrable because I do not have that background, um, and then kind of very top level, uh, I suppose, commercial information about hydrogen. Not not much in between that at all. Uh, um, so yeah, interesting. So I'll come back to Osh and just, you mentioned water. What what else came up then? So the other kind of environmental impacts that we should be, environmental impacts that we should be mindful about, what, what else came up uh, during that report process? Yes, yeah, so we also wanted to, you know, it was carbon and beyond. It was uh, not just beyond carbon, right? So we also first wanted to affirm that the carbon case stacked up with, when it came to um, hydrogen, because again, remember we were looking at the life cycle analysis. So it's you know from from the whole sort of raw input to disposal off, um, and we did manage to affirm that uh, you know it, it can operate with um, close to zero direct and very low life cycle emissions um, are theoretically achievable uh, with the technologies that we looked at. So the technologies that we looked at was you know alkaline electrolysis and PEM or polymer electrolyte membrane and steam methane reforming with carbon capture and storage. So these were the ones that we thought um, held promise currently, but of course there are a few others that we continue to monitor, things like solid oxide and autothermal reforming. Um, 
And so we also say so looking at the, if you want the climate credentials, we focused on the energy efficiency as the key metric of environmental impact, um, which removed, if you want, the influence of electricity grid assumptions. Um, you know, given that these actually vary from market to market and also obviously expected to evolve over time. Um, and on that basis, we found that alkaline systems, while currently are modestly more energy efficient, if you want, um, in the future, PEMIs uh, expected or projected, if you want, to, to, to have more, if you want, greater potential for improvement. So the learning curves are, are steeper. And um, of course, we also looked at, you know, given that the, if you want, the green electrolyzers will, of course, have um, renewable energy as the electricity source. Um, and we also actually went down and under, tried to understand which type of renewable energy would be most climate efficient and found that um, we found a meta review of 153 odd um, life cycle studies which showed that wind energy would be uh, would, would outperform uh, photovoltaic or solar energy on that front as well. And, um, you know, there is also, if you want, going more back into the sort of renewable story, um, you know, coupling electrolyzers with um, renewable energy can um, help manage, if you want, the output peaks and avoid curtailment. Um, also, in, in doing that, supporting the growth in renewables and also improving the economics of hydrogen production, right? Because, and in that case, we found that PEM is better suited to supporting uh, intermittent renewable energy, um, owing really to its greater flexibility in starting up and down and ramping up and down. And um, that sort of coupling arrangement, you know, can help the economics of PEM, um, where hydrogen is really produced when excess renewable energy is available at low prices and can, you know, even result in network cost savings payments um, for helping stabilize the grids. Um, so for our purposes, really, we are interested to seeing, you know, how companies respond to the challenge of really driving climate benefits or meaningful climate benefits um, as the industry evolves and how they navigate the challenges of, you know, all these things of coupling and getting sufficient scale and research and development into the future. You sort of talked about those different factors, uh, you know, the different technologies that you've looked into, but tell me a bit about the barriers to those technologies. So obviously, that's you looked at what they can do, you looked at how they operate and the kind of sustainability of that process. What, what are the barriers that you saw for them? So, of course, we've already touched on water, right? So... Um, so water can be a restrictive factor, particularly geographically speaking. So particular areas or particular regions might be better suited, uh, given that they have more, you know, water secure regions, for example. Um, and of course, an alternative could be desalinization. But of course, uh, desalinization, of course, has its own little baggage on environmental uh, because it will substantially add to the energy consumption and also will have its own other environmental impact. So that's something to be mindful of when you're looking at um, water in that sense. Um, and of course, the other environmental impacts is uh, relating to the mining and production of raw materials like nickel, zinc, platinum, iridium and copper. Um, and I think Abby will touch more onto these later. Um, also quite interesting is um, actual uh, raw material that is required. Um, so, for example, particularly when it comes to platinum and iridium, while we don't see that being a problem in the short term, uh, in the medium to long term, the risk of availability, if you want, uh, really depend on how a whole host of other um, scenarios unfold. So there is, of course, the part about, you know, technological advancements in PEMP, for example, you know, the ability to decrease the usage of platinum and iridium. But there is also, you know, the sort of um, how the sort of internal combustion engines, which use platinum in their catalytic converters, actually evolve and uh, how electric vehicles might actually replace them. And also, of course, the improvement in recycling rates of platinum and iridium. When it comes to platinum, it's also, you know, there is a 
risk of uh, significant concentration of platinum in South Africa. I think over 90% of the reserves are in South Africa, which has its own risks attached to that, right? So uh, the, the production requires power and water, which are both constrained in the region. So it might lead to, for example, supply interruptions potentially. Um, and how companies navigate that would be something else to be um, uh, aware of. Let me bring Abby in at this point, because one of the things that comes up quite a lot, actually, when you're talking to people in industry who are interested in hydrogen but have questions about it, but also some of the uh, observers of industry who are critical about approaches to hydrogen, one of the things that comes up most, I would say, is if people are so keen to reduce carbon, why are they then looking at blue hydrogen, which is obviously probably the the type of process that's getting the most, uh, I don't know, yeah, most interest at the moment, or seen as most feasible for many industrial applications, at least. So in choosing to look at steam methane reforming, um, there was that element where we knew that hydrogen, the hydrogen being produced today is currently mostly um, produced via steam methane reforming with natural gas as a feedstock. Um, and going forward for those net zero and decarbonization um, needs. SMR combined with carbon capture, so blue hydrogen, um, is looked for for several reasons. And one of those is that it's seen by the industry as a transition opportunity to green hydrogen. And it also maintains complementarity with regions with local natural gas supply um, and infrastructure already in place, um, where they also need to decarbonize. And looking at the industry right now, only 0.6% of um, hydrogen being produced today is via steam methane reforming combined with carbon capture. So it's not a lot. Um, but just given this focus on blue hydrogen, especially by fossil fuel companies, we really wanted to get a stronger evidence base around around its impacts. Um, admittedly, I had some skepticism going into this research. Um, but so, yeah, going back to the surprises in our findings, it was really surprising to find that it remains comparable with the renewable electrolysis, even at 100% renewables, um, from a global warming potential perspective, which which I found extremely um, surprising. But the thing is that in those projections, there's some key uncertainties um, that we know are involved with carbon capture and storage uh, and other greenhouse gas elements within the life cycle as well, including with upstream um, methane emissions in the natural gas extraction process. Um, so in relation to carbon capture and storage within the steam methane reforming process, you have about 60% of the emissions that occur within the process uh, occurring pre-combustion, which um, the concentration of CO2 is a lot higher in that part of the process. So it's easier to capture and um, more cost-effective to capture those emissions. Whereas the remaining 40% uh, are associated with flue gas emissions, which becomes more costly and more um uh, technically challenging, I suppose, to, to capture those, which which increases costs. Um, and so current best practice with steam methane reforming with carbon capture are, includes capture rates around 90%. Um, from the studies that we've been reading, it seems like 99% capture rates is technically fe feasible now, but um, cost prohibitive to do so. And, and we know that the technology continues to improve as well around um, carbon capture. But just for those listeners who don't know, carbon carbon capture, so the CO2 that is captured, is then dried and compressed into a dense liquid form and transported and re-injected into the ground uh, to be stored permanently. Sometimes this includes um, enhanced oil recovery operations as well. Um, 
but this uh, goes into either spent oil and gas fields um, or other geological formations and then saline formations as well. Uh, positively, there's an abundance of storage around the globe, um, but these do have to be taken considered on a case-by-case basis um, from a cost perspective and from a research perspective. All of these formations have individual characteristics, um, but and, and long-term monitoring obviously has to be um, in place to, to manage these si- uh, storage facilities over a long period of time. Um, like current standards require about less than 0.01% leakage rates each year so that you have a 99% retention rate after 100 years of this carbon dioxide that's in the ground. Um, Positively as well, experts appear very confident around this, but at the same time, you have only about 28 facilities that are in operation globally at the moment for carbon capture and storage, um, storage facilities that is, uh, with about 40 in development stages. And I think this point really brings home that while it's considered reliable and technically feasible, the, the question remains whether it can be ramped up to the scale needed. And sorry, just last on this topic is is also the upstream emissions associated. So even when you have a 99% capture rate, you still have emissions associated with the natural gas extraction process. So in order to limit that global warming potential, so the, the carbon dioxide um, equivalents emitted per kilogram of hydrogen, in order to limit that, you have to mitigate those those upstream emissions, which which we know is a, is a big challenge in itself. Yeah. Well, I, I asked this question of Osh, but I'll ask it of you as well, Abby, which is, <clears throat> was there anything that came out of this uh, beyond that, um, the, the impact you've discussed so far that, that really struck you? Like what, what jumped out at you as being like, why? Either you didn't expect it or it was more of a powerful issue than you had at first imagined. What what kind of came up for you that really, really kind of struck home? So going back to that water um, element of things, just quickly, uh, it was super surprising that um, steam methane reforming. So in the studies that we happened to look at, uh, they stated that per kilogram of hydrogen, what the water needed is almost, is double that of um, electrolysis, uh, which we found extremely surprising. Granted, some of that, so say it's about 20 liters of water per kilogram of hydrogen versus 9 to 10 for electrolysis. Um, of that, about 7 is for cooling. So that can be lower quality water, seawater, which can be recycled. But that still leaves around 13 liters per kilogram of hydrogen, which has to be high quality demineralized water. Um, so yes, that just reiterates that point that Osh was talking about earlier, the importance of water and the considerations of the impacts of desalination if that has to be used. Um, the other things, so in looking at the environmental impacts, yeah, I took some cues from the life cycle analyses that we were looking at, and they often talked about human toxicity and acidification. And so I dug a bit deeper into some of the causes of this and we, we got back to the mining question and some of the raw materials that are mined for these things. So for seeming methane forming in alkaline, you have nickel inputs. Um, you also have copper and uh, zinc for steam methane reforming. And all of these, so a large portion of nickel in the world plus copper and zinc are all sulfitic ores. 
And that means that when they are smelted, uh, there is a large amount of sulfur dioxide, which is emitted. Um, sulfur dioxide is a pollutant which has implications for human health, including asthma, lung cancer, risk of stroke, increased risk of heart disease. And it also has implications for the environment, including um, terrestrial and aquatic acidification uh, via runoff and acid rain, including some other uh, second degree pollutants as well associated with sulfur dioxide. Um, the good news is that sulfur dioxide emissions in smelting in the smelting process is manageable. Um, however, it does wor warrant further attention, um, given smelting continues to contribute to about 17.5% of uh, global anthropogenic uh, SO2 emissions. Um, stakeholder scrutiny is really increasing uh, to make miners more responsible, more accountable. And this scrutiny comes from many directions, whether it be investors, activists, governments wanting to ensure that they're, they're procuring sustainable materials. Um, this can be difficult to do on the spot market when there's not a global standard for emissions. Um, but you see in the electric vehicle battery market that some companies are, are procuring directly with miners who they know to be responsible. So establishing contracts direct with the miner is one option, but also looking for companies that are um, associated with associations that have high standards. We hear all the time, the last few, the last couple of decades in general, I feel like there has been so much discussion in all sorts of industries whether it's retail or hardcore industrials or elsewhere about know your supply chain and take account, be accountable for your supply chain. And that's really what I'm hearing from, from what you're saying is that, yes, there is an enormous push at the moment and a growing momentum around decarbonisation in a number of fields. But that what your work and this report really pokes us with is the fact that that doesn't mean that you just get to make your decision quickly without looking at the kind of fallout from it. So, Obviously, one of the first decisions people will be making around hydrogen and, and any technology or situation based around the hydrogen economy is, is it viable and economical? But the secondary implication has to be, and am I unwittingly causing some other knock-on uh, environmental effect by just chasing after this shiny kind of new and exciting um, opportunity? So that's what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that like any other procurement um, uh, infrastructure or technology decision it's it's what what are the unforeseen consequences of that decision that we need to just more fully understand the important thing stepping back a bit from from this is to think that um hi i mean at the end of the day it's all also a relative game between different technologies between different uh, decarbonization options uh, and so there are parts of the economy that are very hard to decarbonize where hydrogen could be like the the, the most important or you know, most feasible option but in, in 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 most of the sectors actually there's there's a range of different options uh, so we see that in transport for instance well hydrogen is competing with uh, direct electrification often uh, the direct electrification is the main competing option and you see that uh, electric vehicles are getting very, very good, uh, including on the environmental side. So there used to be, there are still debates about uh, electric vehicles, whether they are truly green and so on. Now, because there's been so much focus on that, the whole industry has been doing a massive amount of work um, with 
issues such as uh, the cobalt supply chain. There's been a lot of work uh, in uh, tightening up standards for uh, human rights, for uh, you know, uh, supply chain transparency, and so on, especially related to, to the DRC. There's been a lot of work in terms of um, decarbonizing the, the battery manufacturing process. Uh, the, uh, you've got companies that are committing to uh, full net zero, including uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the production uh, of the whole electric car. So uh, in transport, uh, that's one where the, the change is happening very quickly with that wider view of the environmental impact. I think that's what's really important with hydrogen as well. Because one thing we want to avoid is you know, mistakes of the past of some technologies that were seen as the future. Um, like, uh, you know, if you look at first generation biofuels, uh, it was seen as a big solution. Then research came in and uh, so that actually when you take into account deforestation impact, the, uh, the climate appeal of the solution is not that great. Similar with things like um, natural gas, and especially LNG, uh, heralded as a, as a big uh, transition option. Uh, and, and again, a lot of research coming in saying that actually there's the fugitive emission uh, side of thing that puts the, yeah, uh, the gas uh, in a, quite a different place when you take that into account. So uh, that's why I think this, this focus on the whole environmental impact of hydrogen is really important because there are lots of things that can be fixed. We've looked at the kind of environmental impact of this technology. It is still um, one that I think of all of the decarbonisation technologies, all of them get some level of pushback discussion. People get enraged. People are big fans. You know, that's the, that's the case with all of them. Hydrogen definitely gets, uh, yeah, a lot of excitement and as much criticism. One of the other criticisms is whether it's even going to be ready at scale in a time frame that actually has a meaningful impact on, let alone net zero targets, but on the kind of 1.5 or 2 degree target that we should all be kind of, that's the number, those are the numbers to really focus on, right? So what's your sense at the end of this kind of research phase about whether the, the sort of pace of development of different hydrogen technologies, even allows it or ensures that it has a place in energy transition. What, what's your kind of your view on that as a group? We are seeing definitely an acceleration uh, in within within hydrogen and, and within how to decarbonize sectors. I think uh, there is an increasing realization that actually um, like transport and especially uh, light duty uh, transport is kind of getting sorted. Um, the electricity grid is getting sorted. Uh, the the techno technology is at a point of, uh, it is at a tipping point where there is, uh, we, we're getting to the mass adoption uh, kind of phase. Um, but it's not there yet for, for um, how to decarbonize sectors, which is pushing, you know, creating more pressure for them because as the other sectors are getting smaller in terms of carbon emissions, uh, they the the hard to decarbonize sector are standing out a bit more, um, and so hence why there's been so much focus. Um, there's 
uh, obviously the stimulus uh, packages that are including hydrogen, uh, which so far uh, was a big um, pushback on hydrogen, the, 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 the infrastructure in particular, infrastructure needs uh, that required um, massive amounts of investments. Now, when we look at the project, so we talked about uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, it's one piece of the equation for hydrogen. That bit is still very small. Uh, the projects are not that many. And, and, and we've seen some, some issues on some projects as well. Uh, I was uh, seeing recently a project in the US where actually they, uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the development is not necessarily that easy. Uh, even though it's building on some of the skill sets that we know about, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, drilling and 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 uh, you know, understanding reservoirs and and so on. Um, but if you look, for instance, at the um, the the research from the uh, International Energy Agency, uh, when they they looked at the uh, you know, all the different elements of low carbon hydrogen. After uh, 32 uh, technology technology blocks, uh, you know, from you know, electrolyzers to pipelines to uh, you know uh, fuel cell uh, ships or trains, etc. Out of 32, uh, there were only three that were considered uh, at a mature stage. Um, so we we see still a lot of the technologies that are relatively early stage. Um, and, and the other thing is, again, thinking about the kind of relative gain, um, that, that there is, you know, back to the economics, there's, uh, the learning rate is really important. Um, so the pace at which you reduce uh, the, the, the cost of the technology. Um, it's been extremely impressive for solar, for batteries, for uh, wind, um, now, for some of the technologies in hydrogen, it, it's getting a lot better, but I think we need to see an acceleration. Um, if you look at the uh, numbers from the Hydrogen Council, uh, which is uh, promoting a hydrogen economy, um, you know, they themselves predict that you know, the, the, the learning rate for technologies like um, PEM electrolyzers or alkaline electrolyzers for the next 10 years uh, would be you know, in the... 13, 9 to 13%. Um, that compares to learning rates of, you know, in the, the, uh, the 30s, you know, uh, for, for you know, 35% learning rate for solar, 39% learning rate for batteries in the last decade. Um, so we, uh, yeah, there, there still needs to be a lot of work. So there, there's a, an increasing amount of investment. We see that with electrolyzers, for instance, that. Um, there is a focus on automating production, getting to the industrial stage, uh, really, you know, from uh, small scale manufacturing to fully automated manufacturing lines, which will drive down the cost. Um, and, and that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, because there are still some kind of uh, bottlenecks here and there uh, that needs to be addressed. And, um, and again, that investment... Uh, needs also to take into account investment in um, all those, you know, uh, addressing all the environmental issues that uh, that we've 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 talked about. Well, I suppose like like anything on a steep development curve, like hydrogen, 
what reports like yours can do, along with the kind of the work that, that you and others will be doing on the economic viability of different technologies, it just keeps it keeps pushing and corralling the kind of people developing those technologies in the right direction, doesn't it? And I think it provides, um, well, not, obviously industrials are the people that I spend most time talking to, but it's not not only about industrials, it's about our kind of national infrastructure. It's, a, it's all, all kinds of people that will be looking at hydrogen technology. It just, it just encourages us all to consider the, the other impacts of what we're trying to do. So if our goal is to limit climate change and the impact on global temperature to 1.5 or, you know, possibly uh, only two degrees uh, of an increase, that's that's great. That's a great goal to have. And the technologies we choose are important, but we also need to look that they don't then have some other uh, ecological or environmental impact. So I think incredibly valuable. And um, as soon as you have dotted the i's and crossed the t's in the report i hope you'll share the link so that we can add it to the the podcast notes for people to tap into um but on that note i really just want to say thank you thank you abby thank you ash and thank you maxim for joining me today it was a real pleasure so thank you thank you very much <laughs>